It's always good to sing together. You guys were singing extra good today, so we're thankful for that. If you'll turn to Colossians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4, you're like, hey, hold on, we didn't cover all of chapter 3. So uh, there's a whole section there on slaves and masters, employees, employers, and uh, I actually listened to a great message on that, and we're going to post that um, this week. Uh, it's a message from Matt Chandler. He did an amazing job on that section, and uh, we're going to cover verse 2 through 6 in chapter 4 today, and, uh, and then that will wrap up our Colossians series. And so I had to be out of town uh, last minute last week, and so um, Drew did an amazing job. Can we put our hands together for the message last week? Um, man, I, I told him several times, and uh, uh, he's a person who gets embarrassed easily, and me keep saying stuff about it. But um, that phrase, practice the promises of God, man, that's, that, I've been hanging on to that all week, and, uh, and that's exactly what I think Paul is encouraging us in here at the end, is which he's been encouraging us in what it looks like to live the life you long for. And to do that, we need to practice some things. And that's what we see here at the end of the book of Colossians. Uh, and so today we're going to look at this big idea that living out the life we long for is accomplished by following the example of Christ. So let's look at Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to look at verse 2 through 6. Paul says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious. You notice what he says there? Always. You know what the word always means in Greek? Always. Yeah. Right? That's a good preacher joke. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It's interesting to me that God lines up texts in certain times, and uh, it's, it's not always done on purpose for us in our preaching calendar, but that the word thanksgiving would show up. And that the topic of walking in wisdom and letting our speech always be gracious as we enter into the holiday season. It's not an accident because we're all going to have opportunities to be around friends, family, loved ones, coworkers, where we're going to be tempted to not be gracious, where we're going to be tempted to not be thankful and be filled with thanksgiving. And yet, God has this text for us today. So, we started our study back a couple months ago, 
And the entire series was built around the central truth that the life that we long for is only found in Christ. Here are some of the titles that we looked through. We looked at the good news that we long for, the power, the Savior, the holiness, the maturity, the stability, the victory, the freedom, the transformation, the peace, and the relationships that we long for are only found in Christ. And so today as we wrap this up, the question is, what will we do with what we've heard? Will we embrace the example of Jesus and begin to walk this out? I think Paul gives us three specific things here in the text this morning about how we can actually take a step towards the life that we long for. If Christ is our hope. You see, the Colossians is a letter about Christ, and it's about his work to change his people. So he desires you to be changed. He desires you to look more and more like him. So let's pray and ask God to help us understand what this looks like. Jesus, we love you. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come right now. Use the words here in Colossians in my feeble attempt to explain it. Help us to see the words of life and be transformed by it. Not just in feeling or in sentiment, but in application. We ask that you would change us by your word, in Jesus' name. And everybody said? So the theme of Colossians is that because Jesus is first, that's chapter 1. So the end of chapter 1, it says he is preeminent in everything. He's the firstborn of all creation. So because Jesus is first, he went first. That's chapter 2. He laid down his life. He lived the life that we could not live, so he went first. He is first. He went first. And then chapter 3, he should be first in our relationships. And here in chapter 4, essentially what he's saying is now that should show up in your priorities. So because he is first, whether you recognize it or not, and because he went first, he should be first in your relationships And he should show up as first in your priorities. You see, the good news of the gospel is that God doesn't accept you because you are fill in the blank. Because you're good enough, you're generous enough, you're kind enough, you're thankful enough. God doesn't accept you because of that. That's good news, right? That was a good place to say amen. It's good news that you are not accepted because you are blank enough because we all know that none of us are good enough. And if it was because of that, we'd always wonder if we had enough. The good news is that God's acceptance and love are offered as a free gift to you. That's what this whole study's been about. It's about his preeminence. It's about him being great. So when it came to love, he went first. When it came 
To the response to that, Paul says Jesus deserves to be first, to be preeminent. And we need to hear these words because God has given us a vision here at Mosaic. To live, love, and labor for the glory of Christ. In other words, how we live, how we love, how we labor ought to show up in worship towards Him in the way that we act, in our priorities. We need to hear these words because His mission, not our mission, His mission should come first. And we believe that God has called us to some amazing things in the days and years ahead. We talked about this last week in our members meeting about the Launchpad campaign, the purpose of buying this facility so that we can reach the valley and beyond. We can send missionaries across the world. We can send church planners all over the valley and beyond. That's the vision that God has given us. The 1% vision to reach just 1% with the gospel of Jesus. If this is new information to you, you can go to our website, go to our about page, scroll down. We've got tons of information about the 1%, about our vision, about the Launchpad campaign. This isn't a message about giving. I'm just letting you know that we do have one. And the purpose of that campaign isn't just to simply buy a building. We want to build a Launchpad where people can come and land and receive the gospel, be shared with the gospel with, cared for, concerned, discipled, raised up, and then sent out, launched from here. And so for us to do that, we have to have this message here in Colossians because it changes our priorities. I hope you're excited about what you see God doing here, but personally, I feel like Paul, who said this in Colossians 1, 5 through 6, he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, did you know we got that same hope? It's laid up for us in heaven. He's not losing sleep over the hope. He's not looking at the world and all the craziness that's going on and saying, I'm not sure if my hope is going to work out. It's laid up. The deposit's been paid. And it's for sure going to happen. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. Did you know that the gospel's come to you? It might be coming to you today for the very first time, but it's come to us. And then he says this phrase, and this is the phrase that I've been hanging on to all week long related to our vision here at Mosaic. He says, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. As it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The question is this, God, could you in our times use us to see that happen in the valley and beyond? You see, Paul ends this letter to the Colossians by calling for a commitment. So last week during the members meeting, we passed out commitment cards. If you're not a member, you can grab a commitment card. And I'd encourage you to grab one, pray over it over the next couple of weeks and begin to ask God, what is it that over the next two years you want me to give towards this campaign? But Paul is asking for a commitment here as well. 
And I think that commitment for us that Paul writes about here informs this commitment. This commitment that we are committing to not only financially give, but live on mission. So Paul is asking for a commitment here, and this commitment is to follow the example of Christ. Because he's been laying out this beautiful picture of who Jesus is and what he's done, and now the things that he asks them to do in chapter 4 are just things that Jesus did. So I hope you can see this very plainly this morning. Living out the life that we long for is accomplished by following the example of Christ. Let's look at number one, by continuing steadfastly in prayer. We will not accomplish our vision if it is not bathed in prayer, period. We have to continue steadfastly in prayer. This is why Paul, at the very outset of chapter 4 here, tells them how they're going to live out what he's been talking about, and it's by continuing steadfastly in prayer. I just took the words right from the text. Verse number 2, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open the door, open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So Paul asked them to pray steadfastly for three things. I want you to write this down this morning. He wants them to pray steadfastly for three things. He wants them to pray for God to open doors to the word. I love this. He's just asking them to say, hey, God, would you open doors? Would you open doors? By this point in his life, Paul had done a lot. He had been on several missionary journeys. He had planted lots of churches. This particular church he had never even been to. He's writing a letter to encourage two brothers who he had discipled that went out and planted this church. He had done a ton. At this point, he's in prison. He's testified to lots of Roman rulers. And if there was ever anyone who could say, I've done my part, it's Paul. But what does he ask them to do? To pray that God would open more doors. As long as you have breath in your lungs, you still have a pulse, your brain synapses are still firing, they might be firing less than others in this room, but if you are upright and mobile, God wants you to pray for open doors, to open doors to the gospel. You know, this is true. If you will pray for open doors, God will open them. The scriptures tell us that any door he opens, no one can shut. Any door he closes, no one can open. So why don't we pray for this? We're asking God to use our church through building this house and the launch pad and seeing God send out seven church plants in the next 10 years that we should be praying all the time, God, would you open doors? God, would you open doors in Stephen City? God, would you open doors in Winchester? God, would you open doors across the world in Brazil? God, would you open doors in Manchester, England? God, would you open doors next door to the person who lives next to me that God would open a door for the gospel to go into that house? 
Here's what I know. The reason why we don't pray for that is because we want him to open the door for us to do other things. We want him to open the door to a new job or open the door to a new car or open the door to a new experience or a new vacation or whatever it is. But when we get our minds on Jesus and what he has done for us, we can't help but ask God to open doors that the gospel would go for. You know what he doesn't ask them to pray for? Would you ask God to open the door of the prison that I'm in? He's not concerned about that. He's concerned that God would open the doors, and he gives the phrase, to the word. This is the most important thing. God's word to us. He's saying, God, would you open the door to the word, that the word would go forward? The question is, what doors for the gospel are you praying for God to open? We have a vision for the valley and beyond. We pray that God would open doors for Mosaic and the gospel to go forward. That the word would go forward. You can make this a little bit more personal. Who do you know? Who do you know? Who doesn't presently know Jesus that you need God to open the door? Every single person in this room knows someone who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. Write that name down. Would you pray right now? Say, God, would you open the door for the word to go in, for the gospel to go in and change their life? So he asked them to pray that God would open the door to the word. Secondly, under this, he prays for boldness to share the good news when the door is open in spite of the consequences. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open the door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. You see, Paul sees his circumstances as divinely arranged. He doesn't say, God, would you open the door from the prison so I could escape? He says, God, pray that the word would go forward in spite of the fact that I'm in prison. You see the difference? I think most of us spend much of our time in prayer asking God to remove our circumstances rather than to work in the circumstances. You see, God wants to work in your circumstances. God wants to work in the fact that your marriage isn't where you want it to be. God wants to work in the fact that your workplace isn't where you want it to be. God wants to work in the fact that you're dealing with depression or anger or fill in the blank. You see, Paul sees his circumstances as divinely arranged for the gospel. And he asks the Colossians to pray for strength to not waste those chains. He says this, that I may make it clear for which is how I ought to speak. In other words, I need God in the midst of my circumstances to use me to see the gospel be made clear where I am. This is what it means to pray steadfastly. You see, most of you are not in chains. Physically. But what if you saw your circumstances in the same way that Paul does? I think it's the same way that Jesus saw his circumstances. 
You see, I believe that we would see incredible things happen in seeing people come to faith and being saved and lives being transformed if we began to take the stance that regardless of what situation we find ourselves in, that the situation or divine circumstances were divinely appointed. Simple way of putting it. Rather than asking God to take you out of your circumstances, what if you just began to pray God, would you work in these circumstances? You see, that's the promise of being a follower of Jesus, that all things in your life may not be easy, but they all work together for good. Right? That's the good news. You see, Paul was in chains, and he was still looking for what God was doing. He saw every setback as a setup from God. This is what it means to pray steadfastly, to pray for God to open doors to the word, to pray for boldness, to share the good news when the door is open in spite of the consequences, but then to pray for wisdom to make it clear. You know how you make the gospel clear? You know it. You know it. You know it frontward, backward, you know it sideways, Right, You know the Romans road, you know the four spiritual laws, you know every way to share the gospel. right? You know the wall and the bridge. right? You, you're continuing to study so that when you get the opportunity, you can make it clear. Paul wanted wisdom to know how to fulfill his particular ministry obligations and God had given these to him. There are certain people in your life who you are supposed to share Christ with. And you need wisdom. Here's what I know. If you'll pray for God to open doors, and you'll pray that God would help you in spite of the consequences, share the gospel, and you ask him for wisdom to make the gospel clear, God will give you opportunity. That's a prayer he wants to answer. Let me give you a little bit of secret. It seems like it makes sense to pray for things that you know God wants to answer, right? And particularly things that you know he wants to answer yes to. He might not say yes to that you marrying that particular person. He may not say yes to that particular job or that particular vehicle or that particular thing. But you know what he wants to say yes to? People coming to faith. He wants to say that. How do you know that? Well, the Word of God says it. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So guess what? We get busy praying and asking God to open doors. So here's my challenge under this one before I move on. My challenge is very specific. I would love, starting next Sunday, before the service, 30 minutes before the service, for five people, just five people, to show up every week and to begin to pray that God would open doors. 30 minutes before the service, God, would you open doors? Would you open doors to our hearts? Would you open doors in the neighborhood? Would you na- open doors in the valley? Would you open doors? I'm asking for five people. They've got to be the same five people every week. 
But five people who would say, you know what, I'm willing to steadfastly pray every Sunday that God would open doors. I'm asking for five more people who would pray that every day during the week, right? This doesn't make you varsity, okay? It's just, we're just asking for people who would say, every day I'll pray during the week between now and the end of the year that God would open doors. People who would intercede. It's real practical. Paul is asking these people to continue steadfastly in prayer. Number two, not only continue steadfastly in prayer, but by walking in wisdom. Verse 5, he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. You see, Paul encourages them to pray, but then he encourages them to walk in wisdom. This isn't just passively praying and saying, well, God may or may not do this, but actually taking steps of faith to walk in wisdom. To say, you know what, I'm going to walk towards that door, and God, if you'll open it, I'm ready to walk through it. To walk in wisdom. Walking in wisdom means being aware of the preciousness of time and the brief moment you have to accomplish what God wants in it. That's what it means to walk in wisdom. It's to be aware of the preciousness of time and then to actually take steps towards it. Uh, This kind of wisdom Paul is talking about is what the psalmist says in Psalm 90 verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You see, the psalmist understands in this particular text, I have to number my days. I don't know how many I've got, but I know I've got today. I've got these 24 in front of me to the best of my ability. I want to walk in wisdom. There's only two things in life that really last forever. This and souls. That's it. To not believe that is to do the opposite of what Paul says here. He says to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. So the opposite of that is to act foolishly. To act foolishly means to spend your life focused on keeping your family close and making them secure and leaving them a big pile of money, but not imparting to them the one thing that really matters. The wisdom of walking with Jesus and knowing Him. It doesn't make any of those other things wrong. Keeping your family close and and investing and saving and all of that type of stuff. But what's most important is our souls. And whether or not they're connected to God. So the question is, are you living with that kind of wisdom or are you acting foolishly? Paul is saying, as a result of Christ being preeminent, of the fact that he laid down his life, chapter 2, he transformed your relationships, the most reasonable thing you could do is to get up every day and walk in wisdom. It's reasonable. And then lastly, he says, by using your words well. So he says, as a result of 
living out the life that we long for and walking in the example of Christ, we will continue steadfastly in prayer. We will walk in wisdom. And number three, we will use our words well. He says, let your speech always be gracious. Season with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul is reminding the Colossians and us today that to remember that your words are being heard. He says to let your speech always be gracious. This term in the New Testament normally is used for the grace of God. But in this passage, it's not about the content of our speech, but the manner of it. That's why he attaches that little phrase, seasoned with salt. Now, you can put too much salt on something, right? And we would say it's what? Salty. Some of you are salty. Right? You sit down with someone and here's what you do. You pull out a a double-barreled gospel shotgun. Or a Gatlin gun and you're like... They're going to know the truth. And you're like, and you just mow the whole group down. And that's not wise. Some of you don't pull anything out at all because you don't know it. You're not equipped. Paul is saying that your speech really matters. And so he says it's got to be seasoned just right. There's nothing like a steak that's seasoned just right, right? There's nothing like it. Some people like hate on the way that I cook steak. But let me just tell you, a little butter, a little garlic on the Blackstone. You don't need much else than that. That's right. Don't knock it till you tried it. And it's seasoned just right. But, but I've been to places and it's either not seasoned at all. And they're like, would you like some sauce? I'm like, did you cook it right? If it's cooked right, you don't need anything. I use that as an example because some of you, you're not in the Word daily, walking with Him, rehearsing the truth of the Gospel. So it's not, it's not season at all. So it comes off half-cooked or undercooked. You see, for us to use our words well, we need to dwell in His Word. Whatever the conversation, we should speak graciously. How we use our words can be the difference between life and death. So the question then is, how can we make our speech salty in a good way? Not over-seasoned. Let me give you a few things. You can meditate on the goodness of God. You know a happy person? A happy person in Christ that sees Him as good and lovely and gracious who gets their worship on every day, not just on Sunday. Their words are so much kinder, so much more lovely. The person who who meditates on the goodness of God. It's amazing how kind their words are. How about this? Meditate just simply on His Word. 
Not just the goodness of God, but His Word. Or meditate on the cross. You know, it's really hard to be prideful when you realize that Jesus emptied Himself and took on all your sins and was nailed to the cross. It's really hard to be prideful when you really look at what Jesus did for you and that He took that sin that no one in this room knows about except for you and He nailed it to the cross. He was bruised. He was pierced. He took the crown of thorns for that ugly, disgusting, nasty, broke down sin that you've been holding on to. It's hard to be prideful when you look at the cross and you realize He hung up there naked in front of a whole group of people for you. That's how you make your speech salty in a good way. You meditate on the goodness of God, His Word, the cross. You worship You think about the gospel and you pray. When God opens the door and you're walking through it, here's a little pro tip. Pray. God, I don't know what to say. Would you let it be gracious and seasoned with salt? God, I don't know what to do in this moment. Would you help me? Would you give me words? I hang out with our, our guys that are going in our residency and, uh, and even our other elders, and they're like, how did you know what to say? I was like, didn't. Didn't. I was like, here's a pro tip. I prayed. And he just helped. He loves to answer the prayers of humble people who come to him and say, I need your help. Part of the reason why many of us haven't seen God work on our behalf is because we just haven't asked him. And we haven't stepped into moments where we need Him to show up. You see, God wants us to use our words well. We see this in Psalm 34, verse 8. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Let's go back to our food analogy real quick. There is nothing like a perfectly cooked steak. And there's nothing like sharing it with someone else. Someone who absolutely loves to cook. I know a person like this in our church. His name's Josiah. He loves to cook. And he's in my small group, so we get to benefit from his love to cook. And I'll never forget this past year, um, we, were, we were celebrating um, Gothia, who was with uh, Michaela and Michael uh, for a while as an exchange student, and she was from Spain. And so we had a going-away party for her, and Josiah made traditional Spanish paella. It even satisfied Gracia's palate close enough, right? She was like, it's pretty good. You know, for a 16, 17-year-old girl, that's, that's about as good as you're going to get. But, but I remember... He brought it into the house and he opened it up and he's just like wanting to share it with everyone. And when he opened it up, the steam came out of it and all the spices and everything, you could smell it. And uh, he, I grabbed a little spoon and I took a, like a, a cheater bite out of it. And you could see the joy on his face. This is what it means to let your speech Be always gracious, seasoned with salt. Are you that excited about the good news of the gospel? 
with the door that He's opened. I thought about this verse, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. I thought about that Spanish paella. What if we were to take that same passion for the gospel? You said, well, Jamie, you said that this is the example of Jesus. It is because Jesus perfectly showed us what this life looks like. Jesus continued steadfastly in prayer. So much so that he prayed the night in the garden before he was crucified. To the point where he he sweated drops of blood. He showed us what it looks like to continue steadfastly in prayer. To pray all night. To invite the disciples to come pray with him in spite of the fact he knew they would fall asleep. Jesus prayed all night. And Jesus perfectly walked in wisdom. He he knew who to talk to. He knew who not to talk to. He, He stepped into all the divine appointments. Jesus shows us what it looks like to not miss one door. Think about what Jesus did. Jesus Rather than doing what every Jewish person normally would do and walk around Samaria, he walked through Samaria. And the text tells us, it says, I needs to go through Samaria. In other words, he knew there was a door that needed to be opened in Samaria, and it was a woman who was struggling and hurting, who had been married four times and was living with another man. He was willing to step through that door even though there would be consequences. Right? There were social consequences for a man talking to a woman. And yet Jesus willingly stepped through it because He knew she needed to hear the good news. And when He got there, He made it clear. She asked questions, this woman at the well, about where God should be worshipped. And he was ready to give an answer. About how it wasn't about where God would be worshipped. But it's that he would be worshipped in spirit and truth. Jesus walked not only and continued steadfastly in prayer and perfectly walked in wisdom. Jesus used his words wisely and was seasoned with salt. With the religious, it seems as though he was pretty salty. But with the downcast and those who knew they had a need, it was just right. You see, if you want to live the life you've always longed for, you've got to look to Jesus. Even on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread and the cup. And it was a representation of the door he was opening to all of us. The gospel, forgiveness, grace. Kindness. So this morning, 
we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And I hope you'll see that it's connected directly to the life of Christ.